This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of New Books Network Podcast. My name is Lee Pierce, uh, they pronouns, and I'm coming to you from the beautiful fall foliage area of New York, excited today to welcome another Com Studies scholar, Ashley Hink, whose new book, Politics for the Love of Fandom, Fan-Based Citizenship in a Digital World, came to us in 2019 from Louisiana State Press. In Politics for the Love of Fandom, Dr. Hank examines what she calls fan-based citizenship, which is civic action that blends with and arises from participation in fandom and commitment to a fan object. Examining cases like Harry Potter fans fighting for fair trade, YouTube fans donating money to charity, and football fans volunteering to mentor local youth, Hank argues that fan-based citizenship has created new civic practices wherein popular culture may play as large a role in generating social action as traditional political institutions, such as the Democratic Party or the Catholic Church. Hank considers the ways in which fan-based social engagement arises organically from fan communities seeking to change their world as a group, as well as the methods creators use to leverage their fans to take social action. Fan-based citizenship performances help us understand the future possibilities of public engagement as fans and creators alike tie the ethical frameworks of fan objects to desired social goals, such as volunteering, mentoring, and promoting environmentally friendly policy. I'm excited today to welcome Dr. Hank to the show. I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, Ashley. Welcome to the New Books Network. Are you there? I am. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on. I'm excited to talk about this book. It's really relevant, I think, to a lot of things we're seeing happening in politics right now. And uh, the book opens with this really interesting argument about the Harry Potter Alliance as sort of like a form of what you call fan-based citizenship. And you make this really interesting argument that uh, that citizenship is supposed to be this very serious matter for uh, real adults who are doing very serious things. And But the book is actually trying to um, expand that definition and show all of the ways in which citizenship can be enacted that maybe we don't think about in the classical sense. So I'd love to hear more about the book or uh, maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and how the book came to be. Absolutely. Thanks. Uh, so I'm an associate professor in the communication department at Xavier University, and I primarily teach in our digital media major and the political communication minor. I got my PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in their rhetoric, politics, and culture program. And I have been a fan for a very long time. And I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, which is part of how how this book came about. And part of why I think this Harry Potter Alliance um, uh, case is so foundational, so important, and really pushes us all to, like you said, reconsider what citizenship, politics, civic engagement uh, look like. So so the Harry Potter Alliance was founded in 2005. It's this nonprofit organization that uses 
parallels from Harry Potter to do social justice in the real world, right? So if Harry Potter were here in our real world, what would he do? He probably wouldn't sit around. He probably wouldn't go watch movies of himself, but rather he would seek to change the world. He would do social justice, basically. Uh, And so it's this real call to action to be Harry for our real world to embody his values and embody his ethics and not certainly not just Harry, but all of the values and ethics in, in the books. Um, And so since 2005, this nonprofit organization has been running campaigns that do exactly that. They uh, have run petitions. They have run phone banking. They've run boycotts. They, uh, raise money for charity, all all of that is part of their kind of civic action repertoire um, that help helps shape our, our, our maybe civic culture, um, the world that we live in today. Uh, and, and in addition to those campaigns, they have chapters, local chapters around the world. So this isn't just a kind of national or international charity that maybe is, is uh, distant from its, its participants, but uh, they have local groups um, all around the world doing their own campaigns and participating in the bigger campaigns as well. Um, so, so I was in college when, when my best friend uh, sent me the very first podcast that the Harry Potter Alliance did. And I was just so taken right away. I was a huge Harry Potter fan. My best friend had been taking me to all of the Harry Potter conventions. Um, We hosted a Wizard Rock band at our house. We had a house concert with, um, so Wizard Rock is is music about Harry Potter. Uh, We were just having a blast. And and as soon as I started listening to this podcast, I knew, I, I was just really moved. And I knew that if this was powerful, for me, it was probably powerful for other people as well. And certainly that is that is borne out. The Harry Potter Alliance has found an audience of millions of Harry Potter fans and and they've been um, running strong since 2005, right? This isn't just a fluke, but rather a really long-term engagement strategy across, across cohorts of people, across generations, right? In 2005, we're looking at a very different group of perhaps Harry Potter fans or um, a very different group of um, very different generation, right? I was a, a millennial, um, and yet they're still finding huge amounts of support, huge huge amounts of participants uh, uh, today. So, so I I I was really motivated to figure out a what was going on and to figure out if they were the only one. And certainly in this book, I, I come to the conclusion that they aren't the only one. That this is not just tied to Harry Potter. This is not just tied to millennials or um, Gen Z. This this is a strategy that we see in other fan communities as well, and a strategy that's increasingly taken up by by politicians. So uh, I find that fandom matters to our civic actions. That rather our our values and beliefs come from uh, the communities and institutions we're a part of, right? We know that the neighborhood we grow up grow up in affects our politics. We know that the church we're a member of affects our politics, that the union at work determines our politics. That's where our political values come from. They come from the communities we're a part of. And so fandom is just another one of those communities. Uh, so it makes sense that, of course, fandom would be meaningful for our civic actions. Of course, fandom would provide sources for our political values. Of course, we would begin to see fandom um, really exert pressure in the public sphere in really exciting ways. One of the 
arguments in the book that you make pretty early on is uh, that, that that if you look at the spectrum of citizenship from what we might call like political citizenship, like the Republican Party, for example, is one is what you give of that to kind of this cultural or almost even entertainment citizenship. That uh, that these are groups that are playing out their politics outside of what we might call like traditional party organization or right? traditional political avenues. And I'm just wondering, have you got any criticism of the book or do you yourself have any concerns just because we are seeing like the merging of politics and entertainment to be so problematic in other ways. And yet your book is very much sort of, um, sort of takes a much more uh, optimistic view of what these merges are capable of doing. And it's interesting that you teach in, in, in one program that is what you say, it's digital media, and then the other one is political communication. So that's, that's like where, the, where, the, where the unique like kind of crossover is of this book, right? Is it literally in those two areas? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I will, I, I think that, so yes, uh, this form of citizenship, this particular citizenship practice or strategy, fan-based citizenship, uh, can be positive and negative. It can be progressive or really problematic. Uh, we, we see it happening in both ways. In part in the book, I, I, I try to defend it as um, this citizenship practice that can be quite good because often our, our stereotypes of fans invite us to dismiss this kind of fan citizenship as silly, as unimportant, as not very serious. And so I, one of my goals is to demonstrate that it is quite quite powerful. But you're absolutely right that now increasingly we have cases where the merging of, of fandom and, and politics is happening in really problematic ways. Um, and scholars are starting to come to terms with that. That is, is kind of the next mm, big, big wave of scholarship, uh, perhaps. Uh, that's, that's where we need to go next. Um, but I do think we can't go there next until we kind of come to terms with the way in which fandom and politics do merge, right? In, in some ways, five years ago, that, that was an open question. Um, so, so once we have that assumption, we're, we're in a better position to actually see what's going on. Because I think sometimes those same stereotypes that, that I pointed out already, right, that fandom is silly, that it's unimportant, um, that it's not very serious, invite us to dismiss some of the really problematic ways that fandom is merging with politics. Um, we might dismiss Trump supporters as silly, as bad citizens, as not really important, as not very powerful. And yet we know that they, they were quite powerful in the public sphere. Um, so, so I do think we need that bigger shift in order to take seriously the kinds of civic actions that, that are increasingly happening in our public sphere. And I hope that my book has provided the framework to, to make both of those critiques, right? To, to critique the ways in which this might be used really problematically, but also to make space for the ways in which this might really transform local communities, state politics, national politics in really, really important ways. Yeah, that's an interesting point because so, so much of the Trump appeal was a almost like a fandom mm -hmm. and people dismissed it as irrelevant and then it became, and now it's going to, I mean, it's going to shape politics for Absolutely. 
Absolutely, absolutely. The next several elections, if not beyond, right? Exactly, right? When we see Trump fans dressing up, right, in costumes, when we see them cheering at uh, rallies, all of those are kind of fanish activities that we don't always see integrated into campaigns or we don't always um, maybe put up front. And so I think it invited folks to, or particular commentators perhaps, to really dismiss that kind of citizenship. And yet um, the results were that these these folks were highly engaged, um, that they did have a very particular kind of political value system, a very particular ideology, and that the civic engagement even though it was kind of a fanish, untraditional-looking civic engagement, ended up being quite powerful for that audience. Yeah, and th- so then in order to make this argument, you you draw on some stuff that I think most people are familiar with, right? You, you once in a while go to history to show that, like, for example, in the suffrage movement, you know, fandom was already kind of in its own way part of that. It's just obviously looked a lot different back then because of what, what fandom was, you know, at the turn of the century. Uh, but then you also introduce some new frameworks and some some new vocabulary of, around ethics. Is there anything you want to go over in terms of keywords or concepts or frameworks for the theories before we move on to talk about some of these interesting case studies? Sure, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that that fandom does is it kind of separates out the ways in which we think about politics. Uh, the ways we think about ethics and, and values as it's used in, in our political culture. So, so I offer two key terms that, that give us, I think, the terms, the vocabulary we need to talk about these new s- civic actions, and that's ethical framework and ethical modality. That um, ethical framework is this kind of abstract political value, perhaps, that we use, and then ethical modality is, is the way in which we enact that value. And so... Cases like the ones I look at in my book, these fan-based citizenship performances, really invite us to think about ways in which those are mixed and matched almost. Uh, Often we've been able to assume that uh, maybe Republican values match with uh, the ethical modality of voting for a Republican candidate, or maybe in your church, there's a specific ethical ethical framework that always matches a particular ethical modality. And yet now we're seeing those might be broken apart and mixed and matched in different ways. We see Harry Potter values applied to electoral politics or Harry Potter values applied to charity. Um, and so it, it, we need some vocabulary to kind of talk about the ways in which that works and the ways in which those those rhetorical appeals are made. Um, and so ultimately, it's a it's a bigger argument about also the, the power of rhetoric, that of course, this popular culture activism isn't automatic, that Harry Potter doesn't automatically turn every reader into a social justice activist, but rather uh, rhetors are the ones making these arguments with ethical frameworks and ethical modalities in ways that are often powerful for audiences. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is always the rub with rhetoric, right? It's like you find it doing these really interesting things, but it's like, well, it doesn't always do that. Absolutely. Don't, get, don't it's not predictive. People get very frustrated when I tell them that. <laughs> it's just that's the deal, right? It is. That's the deal. And it, it people get frustrated too then when you throw pop culture into the mix. It's well, mm-hmm. if Harry Potter fans are doing this, was that inevitable? And and it's of course it wasn't inevitable. It was a particular group of 
fans that made those particular arguments and it circulated in broad ways and it shaped the culture. And it's this real kind of waterfall effect. The Mm -hmm. fan culture was ripe um, for this kind of activism and and not all fan cultures are, that there's a great Mm -hmm. uh, variation. Um, But it's, it's hard to always leave open that possibility, but it doesn't have to be this way. Fans can always create change. Um, Yeah. Fans can always create change. Rhetoric is powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are good, good takeaways. Uh, so in terms of examples, you have a, a couple of really different, interesting examples, but I really like this, um, this nerd criteria, which was, it was like white women, but they were all sexually diverse advocating for social change. So I don't know if you want to start there or if you have a favorite example, but I really thought the nerd criteria was really fascinating. Absolutely. So, so this nerd fighteria fandom is an online community uh, centered around the Vlog Brothers YouTube channel. That's John Green and Hank Green. John Green is the young adult uh, author that we might know from things like The Fault in Our Stars. Um, Hank Green has has written a few books lately as well, and um, has really taken a kind of leadership role in a lot of uh, online YouTube kinds of communities. Um, so, so they have this, this YouTube channel called the vlog brothers where they make videos back and forth and the nerd fighters are, are their fans, right? They're these, these nerds that they, they really embrace this kind of nerd identity. Um, and they created this, this charity project called the project for awesome. It invites all of YouTube to donate money and make videos arguing for those donations uh, to go to their favorite charities. So not only are they talking to kind of YouTubers and saying, hey, you should donate to this particular charity for this reason, but they're also donating money to this Project for Awesome fund that then folks can vote on. And so the top vote-getting charities get um, various portions of this fund at the end. And in in 2018, they raised $1.6 million, right? So this is a huge charity event. It's not a small little underground measly project, but rather um, raising millions of dollars each year. Really, really significant. Uh, so so for me, it seemed like the like a really interesting example of this fan-based citizenship because they're raising money for charity completely within this fan culture framework. For nerd fighters, donating to charity, talking about these charities, making arguments for the work that these charities do, all of that was a matter of being a good nerd fighter, a good vlog brother fan. That this was another way in which they could enact the values of their fandom. So that those were things like being enthusiastic, being intellectually engaged, being silly, showing empathy, empathy for others and creating community. All of those were ways in which they could um, participate in the in the project for awesome. It was really a matter of expanding their ethical framework to include the project for awesome. It was like any other fan activity for them, whether they were doing kind of fan art or games or nerd fighter conventions, participating in the project for awesome was like another fan practice for them. It was um, expanded to be included under their, under their ethical framework. And what, what's the research methodology then for this chapter? I don't know if it's different from your other ones or how did you go about putting together? Um, cause, cause you sort of allude to your methodology throughout the book, but there's never really a, cause obviously you must've interviewed fans or in this case, did you just watch a lot of 
videos? Were you were you already part of the culture or did you find it because of the book? So can you tell me more about how this chapter sort of emerged through research? Absolutely, absolutely. So for, for each of the chapters, the methodology um, was kind of split into two parts. One, I, I wanted to dig into the community, figure out their values, learn their fan practices, learn what it means to be a Harry Potter fan or a nerd fighter fan or a Star Wars fan. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time engaging, watching the videos, like you said, uh, hanging out with other fans, interviewing fans and doing online open-ended surveys. Um, and, and so that was kind of how I, I learned about the online community. Uh, then the second part was really the rhetorical part of each case study. It's now that I know the audience, now that I understand the context surrounding this particular civic action, how can we make sense of the rhetoric emerging from this online community? Uh, and so there I archived texts and uh, engaged in rhetorical criticism. Um, the... The methodology was was a big kind of question mark that I had to kind of work my way through and figure out. Um, these case studies really cross disciplinary boundaries, right? There's internet research here. There's fan culture research here. There's rhetorical research here. So I was able to kind of cobble to get together lessons from each of those, lessons from internet studies research and studying online communities, but also lessons from uh, field methods and rhetoric, as well as um, how to approach fans and fan culture in particular from fandom studies. Um, so that that's... Um, Kind of, kind of buried in, in chapter one, if, if any of the listeners are, are interested, um, working through some of some of those questions. Um, but ultimately... Well, and the methodology is really interesting in this case, because one of these vloggers, one of the brothers, actually had his own census. So yeah. You could have, so, uh-huh. I mean, it, it, I think it goes to strengthen your argument, right, that this, like, that this fan culture is significant, because they're, they even have sense, censuses? Sense, right. I, I don't know how, I don't know what the plural is of their people that you could then compare your results to. So in that sense, it strikes very much like a Gallup, like a, you know, a Gallup census or a Republican party audit or something like that. So that was interesting that they actually had their own census. And then that you actually re did your own survey, which I I found interesting because I would have just grabbed the data from the census, but you actually did your own survey and found some overlaps, but also some significant differences. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, some of that was motivated by the fact that I just had different questions. So I was interested in not only who was a member of that community, right? And and you pointed out in this case, it was um, very much predominantly women, young teenage women um, who were diverse in their sexuality, um, but but also quite white. and, and that different, so that told me kind of who I was reaching in my particular survey, right? I tried to post it in various fan places. I uh, engaged in some snowball sampling, right? Handing it off to important people in the, in the fan community to circulate. But I certainly can't claim that that's representative. I have, I, I don't mm-hmm. know for sure. And so, so Hank Green's census kind of helps us compare, um, gives us maybe a bigger sense of the fan community, because um, that's often the challenge with these online communities as well. It's hard to know um, who's here, what those general perceptions are, um, and 
and, and what that what that looks like. But I was hoping that some online open-ended surveys combined with some interviews combined with some rhetorical analysis would give us a pretty big picture, um, even, even if it's maybe not always um, a perfect picture. It, it gives us a pretty pretty good zoomed out look. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a really fascinating case study and something I'd never heard about. Um, I, I work with a, I have a colleague who's really into fan studies. So I sent them this book and they were like, oh, I love all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, I haven't heard, other than Harry Potter, I've heard of almost none of these examples. So it was interesting Absolutely. to see how for the people in the know, these were very, because, and again, these are young, young adult authors of pretty popular books. So mm-hmm. it would make sense that these have a little more notoriety but even even still i hadn't heard of them because i'm a i'm notoriously bad at reading fiction no but because i spent all my time reading academic books (laughs) (laughs) absolutely but i think you also point out a kind of a an interesting both challenge but also takeaway that these are really significant cases in which millions of fans are being engaged and they're raising millions of dollars and yet they aren't necessarily talked about in our in in mainstream news or in, mm-hmm. in in all parts of our culture, that there's a sense in which they're really big and significant, but also underground. And I think that's the that's a result in part of, of the internet. We've been able to develop these kind of niche communities. And so if you don't if you aren't a part of these communities, if you don't have a toe in geek fandom, if you don't have a toe in YouTube or Harry Potter, you you haven't heard of these things and yet that doesn't make them insignificant that doesn't make them not powerful they are absolutely huge powerful and significant for these groups of people um so and as much as i'll say that i i will say too that we're starting to see um broader news coverage of these events and that brings a whole nother challenge how do how do journalists make sense of these kind of unusual civic uh, engagement performances uh, and yet totally typical, totally um, the key part of our public culture. They shouldn't, these, these performances shouldn't be surprising at all. And yet we're kind of trying to come to terms with the ways in which these might look different. Yeah. Well, and I mean, this book was published in 2019, meaning you probably had pretty much most of it cemented by what, 2017, 2018. So even in just the last couple of years, what we've seen with, with fan culture being such a huge, I think I read a survey somewhere. I can't find it. I I've cited it three times, but I can't remember where I read it about the rates of mental health issues um, and how they were during the pandemic and how much lower they were for people who had already created online fan cultures. Mm, absolutely. They didn't have to suddenly make that shift to being on the internet. Makes sense. Right. And then also absolutely. W- when you see these things merge, like those people on TikTok who were buying all of those seats at Trump rallies and then so that they were empty, right? I mean, you've, you've seen an explosion of this stuff just even in the last couple of years since the book was published. It's pretty, it's pretty, I've never seen a book that, that was this new and also had predicted so much of the following couple of years in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of unusual. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't 100% sure that all of that would pan out in quite the same way. And yet it, it has. Um, so, so I hope this is a call for folks to kind of take fandom seriously and sure, to take yeah. these, these unusual looking um, civic actions seriously. I, I think we're going to need to, I, I think 
politicians are going to increasingly need to come to terms with this. It might not be weird if you get a letter from your constituent referencing Harry Potter, right? Um, mm-hmm. so, so this is, this, we all kind of need to recognize these as really significant and legitimate civic actions. And just kind of taking us into one that maybe feels a little bit more familiar, at least in terms of the spectrum of more uh, unique fan-based activism or, or politics to sort of something that maybe already fits into what we think of as, as a, like a real traditional framework. You have this example of Greenpeace using Lego sets to talk about the danger of oil spills and advocate for, for sort of, so this is, so Greenpeace is already a familiar organization and they're using kind of like power of social media, hashtags, that kind of thing. And then just this Lego infrastructure. So this is a really good example too, I think for someone who maybe is a, is a little hesitant to go like really like Harry Potter, but um, you have a range of them in here. And I think this one is definitely more to the, to the end of the spectrum that feels more familiar as opposed to nerd fighters, nerd fighteria and the Harry Potter Alliance. They might feel a little bit more, into the realm of the future, so to speak, for some people. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It's it's a really interesting example. So in, in 2014, Greenpeace launched their campaign to save the Arctic. And one, one part of that campaign, one arm of that campaign, aimed to get Lego, the company, to end a promotional deal that they had with Shell Oil. So Greenpeace was trying to decrease Shell's advertising to children and maybe put a dent in their kind of respectability and general PR, right? Um, And indeed, the campaign worked. Three months later, Lego ended the promotional deal that they had with with Shell. Um, so, So Greenpeace achieved that in part through this YouTube video they released that's about three minutes long. It's a it's a animated video with Lego pieces and these Lego pieces are depicting the Arctic. There are polar bears, there's um, their workers, their animals. It's, it's really this kind of lovely scene of the Arctic until um, there's an oil drill that uh, has oil spill into the Arctic. And slowly you watch all of the Lego pieces drown in this, in this sea of oil. And they, they take the, a song from the Lego movie the, the everything mm. is is awesome song and they they re remix that song they they re-record it and suddenly instead of being this upbeat happy song it's really sad really melancholy um really depressing and so by the end of the video you're you're watching lego pieces drown in oil and you're hearing this really sad song about how everything presumably is is not awesome because of the re- remix of the the song um, and this this video went viral, right? It was seen all all over the internet. It got coverage from really mainstream news outlets. Um, it was not this is not an example where it stayed kind of underground in a fan community, but really circulated widely. And and clearly, I think Lego's quick response to to ending their their deal with with um, Shell demonstrates perhaps the power of the video. But this is also a really interesting example because it didn't necessarily do a good job of finding adult Lego fans as their audience. That in fact, um, the video really um, criticized Lego. And so for adult fans of Lego who are totally dedicated to Lego, spend 
a significant portion of their their time and money pursuing this hobby and this fan culture, they were they were protective of their fan objects. They were not super pumped at this this really harsh criticism. So so I saw a lot of fans kind of wrestling with that. They admitted that they generally support environmental action that is safe, that is good for the planet. Um, but they had they had significant problems with this campaign. So this was a campaign that ended up targeting kind of a broader public, maybe perhaps parents with young kids who could easily boycott Lego um, with less of, of the cognitive dissonance that that Lego fans would have experienced. Um, so for me, this is this is a case that also points to the complexity of these actions, that they're not easy. Um, this is good or this is bad or this is effective or this is not. But there's a lot of complexity in, in which audiences are activated, how how a fan love is is activated or maybe how fan audiences can be brought in or, or not. Um, and maybe how traditional organizations like Greenpeace really don't always understand fans, right? In this case, it was a real miss. They could have, they could have brought a f- fans in and boy, they would have been a really powerful audience to activate, right? Fans are dedicated and they're usually really big numbers, right? Something for um, both Harry Potter fans and Lego fans, right? Occur in huge numbers. They they would have been a really useful ally that Greenpeace missed out on. Um, So it's it's one of those cases that points to our complexity um, and certainly points to ways in which this might work out differently in the future. Certainly Greenpeace did not have to alienate fans of Lego as they did. Um, there are certainly, uh, there are certainly versions of their campaign that, that would have avoided that. Um, yeah. So fans and, and how does the fact that Lego has so, has so, so historically targeted men and boys, does that at all play in? I know you mentioned it at the chapter. I just, how does that play into the, the yeah. campaigns, um, I wanted to say success, but how does it play to the campaigns like maneuverings? Yeah, that's a really good question. So adult fans of Lego are predominantly white men. Um, part of that is a result of some pretty clear marketing from Lego. Lego wants to sell their toys to young boys. Boys are seen as the valuable market, as the... Um, as the market to win, the most most important market, uh, mm-hmm. much much to the disdain of young girls, right? Um, like Lego has made a couple attempts to to reach young girls in the toy market, but they often do so in in ways that are problematic. Um, they create separate toy lines for girls, um, keeping girls out of the kind of more prestigious boy line of, of Legos, right? Um, instead of bringing girls girls into that. So their, their marketing continually reinforces this idea that, that Lego is, is for boys. And we see that in who grows up to be an adult Lego fan. It is very much um, men who kind of pull out their Lego sets from when they were kids. Um, maybe mm-hmm. they pull them out to show to their to their own kids. Um, maybe they just pull them out to return to the hobby and, and find new, new communities, new, new activities, uh, as an adult Lego fan. Um, certainly we're seeing more women, um, 
make their way into the fandom. And there are certainly some places of the fandom that are receptive to that, more receptive perhaps than other corners of the fandom. Uh, so I so I hope fans continue to push and do what maybe the Lego company is struggling to do. Um, and I, I certainly hope that we continue to make room for, for women and non-binary folks in the Lego fandom. But we also know that STEM... Uh, reinforces this view of Lego fans as mostly men, right? So if Mm -hmm. Lego is framed as a toy for people interested in engineering, in math, in um, science, we are pulling in all of the other stereotypes that are already so predominant in our culture about who gets to be an engineer, who gets to be an architect, who should be interested in those kinds of things. So there are a number of factors that kind of... um, push men into Lego and push men into Lego fandom. But there are some also some really important ways in which fans are pushing back against those. Um, for the for the campaign, uh, it was it was kind of uh, I don't know that I saw any patterns in terms of that that gendering. Um, hmm. uh, I worked with um, I did some interviews with a number of adult fans of Lego and, and kind of across the board, they were, were not impressed with Greenpeace's campaign. Um, the, the maybe follow-up question then would be whether local adult fan, uh, local communities or local groups of adult fans of Lego, um, maybe do other kinds of civic engagement and whether their their particular makeup affects that. If there's a local group that um, is perhaps more open to to women and non-binary folks, um, they, they might push for, I don't know, we might see really, uh, we might see particular kinds of campaigns. I'm not sure. Um, in this case, it was really Greenpeace not engaging the fan culture at all. Um, Greenpeace really kind of imagining, I think, either broad audiences, coverage on things like Good Morning America, and maybe parents buying uh, Lego for their kids or moms buying Lego for their kids. Yeah, and one of the things you point out, because there's there's a couple components, and so this, I mean, and for the person, for the audience listening, this is a super complex chapter. So there are many layers to this book, including the way that Ashley names the strategies and ethical frameworks that individually take place in each of these case studies. And so just for the sake of not overwhelming, we, we miss a bunch of layers, but the, the downside to that is that sometimes you wind up with this kind of like simplistic conversation, but there's the, there's the plastic oil part, which I think in that case I can understand why that fails because I feel like if I'm playing with a bunch of toys that are my fan object, as you call them, Mm -hmm. and they are made of plastic that somehow I know that a critique of the Shell oil company is not as simple as just, just discontinue the the advertising relationship with Shell. I mean, it threatens a much more fundamental aspect of the, of the relationship because of everything I'm made with everything I'm playing with is made out of an oil-based plastic, right? But then yeah. on the other side, you have this argument that I that I think accounts for more of the success of the campaign about how it's not just that they show the pieces drowning in, drowning in oil, but also that you, you say that they framed Shell 
as a threat to creativity, which is sort of one of the core fundamental values of the Lego community. So how does, so I, so I have the first part that makes sense why that would, they really needed to bring fans in on that because clearly they just, you know, poked way too much at the bear. But what about the, the threat to creativity? Do you, how did you see that playing out in the video? Yeah, yeah. And and it's really interesting. I, I, I wish I knew more about whether Greenpeace was kind of falling backwards into into this. Um, but the, it, part of it was, was a connection to uh, some of the values that were emerging from the Lego movie, which had, which had just come out. And right. in the process... Greenpeace's video was was really making an argument that Shell Oil threatened um, the values at the center of of the Lego community. Those values were creativity, support, and public outreach. And so, in the Lego community, folks build their own Lego creations. They don't necessarily follow directions that are given by the Lego Corporation, but reimagine new ways to put bricks together to create these really impressive creations. Sometimes they're the beautiful art artworks. Um, sometimes they're really intricate, careful mechanical designs. Um, regardless, they're using these bricks to create really interesting things. Um, and so, fans look for ways in which these creations are particularly creative or impressive. They also look to support each other in this building process to share ideas, to um, to encourage, to um, enable folks to build new, really particularly interesting things. Um, and then they engage in public outreach. And this might be a, perhaps an unexpected part of the Lego campaign, but they have these public exhibitions, um, which take these creations that adult fans of Legos make, they take them to the public. And this public outreach is a really key value of adult fans of Lego. They want to share the joy of Lego with other people. They want to share their creations with other people. And they want to talk with other folks as they look at these creations. So this Greenpeace video in which uh, really beautiful creation of Lego depicting the Arctic is just drowning in oil, all caused by Shell, really positions Shell as a threat to each of those values. It positions Shell as a threat to creativity in which um, a build like that can't happen, both support as well and public outreach. Seeing that oil um, take over the the build, the mock in, in adult fans of Lego terms, uh, frames it as a threat to what fans of Lego value most. And so in that sense, this video really almost um, made a strong argument to fans. It was positioned to really activate those, those fan values, but didn't quite succeed in the end. Yeah, no, this is a great, I mean, this is a great, chapter for the for the rhetoric because it is so like what did i mean because we'll never know right we have no idea what even with with all the interviews you could still never figure out i don't think resolutely what it is that that made the campaign work and yet alienate so many people at the same time mm -hmm. um it could be its own book i mean it's a really great case study did, you know, was this one that you were already familiar with or that you 
that you came across and when you uh, asked people to recommend this, this was, this was one I I came across um, in part because it got really wide news coverage. Um, So I started, I found the Harry Potter Mm. case study because I'm, I'm a Harry Potter fan and I was kind of inside that community. Lots of Harry Potter fans are also vlog brothers fans. Those communities really sit next to each other. So that was within my, my realm that was in my kind of corner of the internet. Lego was receiving this really wide news coverage uh, right as I was finishing my dissertation. Um, And so I I knew that it would be the next kind of complex case study to, to work through. Yeah, no, it's really fascinating. Uh, So, okay. So we're coming up on time, uh, which is always what happens when these conversations are so interesting. So we can talk about, we have a couple chapters we haven't chatted about yet, including, um, the football coaches challenge and the star Wars force for change, which is something I was familiar with before the book. And then you have this really interesting section at the end, a coda that's takeaway for practitioners, which is something that I have been seeing more in books, but still is rather rare. And I I like this turn in academic books to add sort of these takeaways. So is there one spot in particular you want to focus on as we wrap the interview? Um, it's so hard to choose. I, I love it all. <laughs> I know, I know. It's, your, it's your book, right? I want to do all of it. Well, I mean, if you don't, if you don't have a preference, I'm thinking we go to this, this coda just because okay. it's unique. And I don't know that a lot of people have done it. All right. Awesome. So basically, essentially, it's exactly what I said. It's a coda that comes after the conclusion of the book that is takeaways for practitioners, some of which we've already talked about, right? Greenpeace needing to bring in the fan community before just kind of assuming uh, that their message would land because of their their commitments to the environment, not thinking about how that might come up against their nostalgia or their relationship to Legos. It, so that's one, obviously, that we already see emerging from that chapter. What are some others that you that you kind of took away from at the end of the book? Yeah, uh, one is that practitioners should take fans seriously. Um, mm-hmm. That fans shouldn't be dismissed, uh, but rather they. Fans are not weird, not loners, but rather um, truthfully really valuable audiences that that you um, could or should connect with. And so the first step is kind of not laughing at fans, not dismissing fans, but but taking them and their work seriously. Um, for me, that that is one of the the key messages of the book, and and one of my my hopes that come out of this book that folks can begin to take fans seriously. A couple others. One would be to know what ethical framework you're invoking. So especially if you're an organization um, who kind of says, oh, I, th- I think we could connect up with some of the stuff that we see happening in Harry Potter. Y- you you need to know all aspects of those Harry Potter ethical values um, to go in and make uh, an off-the-hand connection or... Um, to connect up to something that maybe you don't know how, how deep it goes or the other connections that, that follow, that could be potentially dangerous. Um, mm-hmm. Instead, we live in a world in which popular culture is deep, complex, and fans do a lot of work to work through the ways in which pop culture is complex. And so uh, for practitioners hoping to engage in this kind of work, um, I, I hope that they do deep research to understand the ways in which fans have come to interpret the particular political values of whatever the fan object is. Um, Fans do a lot of work to take it in particular directions and knowing what kind of lies beneath the surface is key. Um, 
you know what's really interesting about this takeaway? I'm going to nerd out for a second in yeah. a different direction, but um, how much this sounds like Lacanian psychoanalysis? Okay, I don't know how much of that you read, but uh, for like the the the, the love of the object always uh-huh. comes first, right? Absolutely. Is one of your lessons. I mean, it's very, it's got that very Lacanian uh, attachment to the object. Understand the 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 you know the drive. It's I mean, it's pretty interesting how much. I mean, if I had more time, I would love to just. You could almost write a. You can almost write an article about the overlap here that you kind of wound up in from a different angle. So it's always cool when theories and frameworks run into each other when someone I don't think meant. I mean, there's no there's no illusion anywhere in this book that that was part of your your way of thinking. So it's interesting that they are mutually supporting yourself. So what that leads me to think is maybe these if these are your ethical takeaways and these are your frameworks, maybe this stuff isn't like that new, new after all. Mm hmm. We might be seeing it play out in unfamiliar and new ways because, you know, just because of the proliferation of technology and, and the the change in like global societies. But you know, fundamentally, I think some of these these frameworks that you're advocating for have been around a long time. And it's just another way of reminding people that like rhetoric matters. Right. And so people forget that, that you have to think about if your persuasive strategy is persuasive to the people you're chatting to or whether it's just the thing you thought would work. And so you did that. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And and maybe rhetoric becomes a little more challenging in a world in which our communities are just so um, fragmented or nichified. It right? probably does. I, I mean, it almost has to, right? Absolutely. I think that's true. Absolutely. Yeah, um, because one of the, if, and you make this argument too, you say, uh, I wish I could find the quote. It's not about the ethical. Oh, yeah. You say, for practitioners on the ground, that means being aware of the already established interpretations circulating and knowing which interpretations are popular and which ones are not, right? Which could be a challenge for somebody outside fan culture because you may think the fan culture is about ABC, but that's because you're on the outside. And But on the like, if I had to guess what Doctor Who fan culture is without actually knowing, I bet I'd be wrong. Yeah. I bet, yeah. I, could, I, bet I could guess, but I, I don't think I'd be right. But you have to know that that's that's the case, right? And it isn't like this is a guidebook to every single inside fan culture. I mean, people who want to know this stuff are going to have to are going to have to work with the fan cultures if they want to get this right. And you say that they uh, the practitioners must invite fan citizens to see one ethical framework over all the other possible choices requiring persuasion, argument, and invitation. Because that's the issue with the Lego is that the that they have to see one framework over other frameworks. And so what the, what the, what the campaign didn't think about is how they were activating frameworks that they didn't intend to activate. And those wind up competing with the one with the, with the sort of like uh, protect the environment framework. Absolutely. They wanted. Yeah. It's a real, I mean, it's a really complex book. It's super interesting. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. And um, you, this must be great for teaching. Cause I know you mentioned in the book, you did some, some work back in 2012 where you advocated with the legislature, but what are you doing with it now in the, in, in current teaching anything or yeah, have you kind of great gotten question. over it at this point? No, I mean, my poor students, they're probably tired of all of my Harry Potter examples. They no way. Are... I, no way. <laughs> I don't think too. students can ever get tired of that stuff. They I love know, it. I know they do, but they do look at me like I'm old. Like I'm clearly the millennial Harry Potter fan. Oh, that's so interesting wow. because sometimes they teach classes for little kids in China. And the one thing that we can always talk about is Harry Potter. Oh, that's so interesting. Absolutely. And they're like seven. That global circulation. Or, or 12. So between seven and 12, you know, so maybe it's, maybe it's a, a, a cultural thing, but absolutely. Yeah, yeah i'm teaching a a fandom class right now team teaching that was with a friend in english and but but this this book and these cases um come up for me uh, across all of my teaching right whether it's 
um, online a class on online communities or whether we're talking about PR in an internet age or whether we're talking about um, fandom in our culture broadly. Um, it For me, fan culture is really a key part of, of our current contemporary communication culture, something we have to come to terms with and know and um, explore. So yeah, it comes out all the time. <laughs> Oh, I bet. Yeah. Um, well, it's been awesome chatting, Ashley. It has been awesome, not not awesome, as the as the song goes. <laughs> and again, we've been ch- chatting with uh, Dr. Ashley Hink, author of Politics for the Love of Fandom, uh, Fan-Based Citizenship in a Digital World. I couldn't remember the end. I got the first part. And I just want to remind everyone who's interested in the book or has a fan in their life, these make great presents. If you want to pick up a copy, we recommend heading over to bookshop.org as an alternative to the uh, the a the a site that shall not be named to pick up your copy of the book they do they do make sure that a significant portion of your sales go directly to the book publisher and the author and on that note I'd also like to thank the publisher of the book uh, University Presses are so important to the work New Books Networks do I'm sure Ashley can attest as I can that without them um, we don't really get the depth of quality of editing that we might if we tried to say self publish or go with a, a trade press and so in this case. Louisiana State University Press is to thank for this particular book. So um, if you want to head over to their website, that's Louisiana State University Press. It'll be linked in your show notes. You can get a copy of the book there. And if you're not interested in a copy of the book for yourself or someone else, something very cool that you can do is purchase a copy, preferably hardcover, uh, for your local library. Um, Public libraries, I, I can only imagine what it would be like for somebody without means to head into a local library and see this book on the shelf and get to learn about all the interesting academic and, you know, rhetorical ways that fan-based citizenship, uh, things that are in their lives are actually playing out, you know, at, a, at an intellectual level. I think that's an amazing thing to do for, for the public who don't have, you know, university libraries at their fingertips. And if that's not available, you can always request that your library or your university library pick up a copy so it's on the shelves for years to come. And so with that, uh, that's my plug. Ashley, do you want to say anything else before we say goodbye or maybe let us know what you're up to at the moment? I know you just started the semester. So that's probably heavy on the mind, but have you got another uh, book coming up or are you uh, giving a talk at uh, a conference anytime soon? That's a great question. I, I've, all of that feels so up in the air in COVID world. I, mm, I don't know sure. the next conference that I get to visit folks at. So, um, yeah, no, nothing, uh, in particular, just thinking about the ways in which, um, we're seeing fandom, emerge through politics and boy working through the ways in which that happened in the 2016 and 2020 presidential elections there's so much there to work through so those are the current projects as i get oh ready i'm excited yes i was i was wondering if that was going to be the next phase makes sense right makes sense mm-hmm. with this one is about how politics kind of show up in fandom but you could easily flip that how p- politics are already fandom right now are already fandom in a lot of ways. Exactly, exactly. There's a way in which this kind of underground fan strategy is being taken up by politicians and in um, maybe more official institutional networks. I think folks are starting to see the the success of these strategies. So new new things to work through certainly. Well, we're excited. Well, as soon as the book's out in the next one to 20 years, let us know. We'd love to have you back back on New Books Network. And with that, I'll just uh, say goodbye to everyone. Thank you for tuning in as always, and stay tuned for future episodes of New Books Network.